Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, I wanted to explore a little bit more broadly the subject of spiritualism. This was a very big movement in the 1800s in the United States, really, and it was uh, very big in the Quaker communities, often driven by their members. And Southwest Michigan had a lot of Quaker communities, and there were a lot of spiritualists. In fact, there's quite a number of them. So I'm going to go into some of that history here today, and we're going to talk about the origins of spiritualism, and I'm also going to read some long-forgotten books from the Library of Congress on this, so or at least parts of it. I'm not going to read you the whole book. <laughs> so come along and join me. This ought to be interesting and fun. So the origins of spiritualism as the movement was termed was begun by a pair of sisters, and they were known thereafter as the Fox Sisters. It was Margareta, also known as Maggie, and Catherine Fox. And Catherine went by Kate. Now, these two girls lived with their parents, John and Margaret, who were Methodists in Hydesville, New York. And that was where they originally lived. Now, the house that they lived in was apparently reputed to be haunted. However, that may have been something that the girls invented. There's a little bit of haziness on the origins of that. However, the two girls decided to prank their mother, and one of the pranks that they came up with was the ability to talk to the murder victims and the people that died in the home. And so they made this claim um, that they were able to do so, and what they did is they set it up so they were at a table in their room, and they called their mom in and said, hey, mom, listen to this. And they asked questions to the general room, and then they, the answers to the questions would come back in a form of a knocking. And so this was uh, startling to the mom, and they were actually playing a prank on her. And this prank did not get revealed until almost 30 years later. Um, it was just something that the girls were playing with their mom on this one occasion and they would do other things like in the middle of the night they would bounce a ball on the uh, floor and it was uh, they lived they were on the upper floor and their mom was on the lower floor and they do it after they'd gone to bed so their mom would hear this bouncing sound and and uh, wouldn't connect it with the girls thinking that the girls wouldn't play a prank on her and that sort of thing and so they were uh, a bit of mischievous uh, young ladies now, this incident happened in 1848, and Margareta was 15 years old, and Catherine was 11 years old. And so they pulled this prank on their mom, and their mother was so disturbed by this that she decided to have them moved out of the house, because apparently the girls were in contact with these spirits, and she was looking for the best interest in them and getting them away. So Margareta was moved to live with her brother David, and Kate... The youngest one was sent over to live with their sister, Leah. Now, Leah was 35 years old, so she was an older sister by 20 years older than Margarita. And so this is um, what happened to that. Now, Leah heard about the incident, 
asked the girls to get together and demonstrate it for her, and she was a firm believer at that point. And so Leah kind of took over the whole idea of, hey, we could uh, make this into something where we could make a little bit of money with this. Um, or she could promote her sisters as being mediums. And that's what she did. So Leah kind of became their manager. And uh, Kate and Margareta at the same time didn't tell Leah the truth. They kept it to themselves. So they began to put on these demonstrations over in Rochester, New York, which is where their brother and Leah lived. And um, they would hold meetings with people and show them in a form of a seance how they would talk to the dead. And they would uh, talk to the dead, and then they'd hear rappings in response. I'll go into the rappings a little bit more later as the girls describe later in life what actually was going on there. But what the audience was seeing, that there was knocking sounds in the vicinity of the girls, whether the girls were sitting at a table or if the girls stood up during the seance and went over to a wall or something, they would hear these knocking sounds and they didn't see the girls tapping on anything and they didn't witness anything out of the ordinary and they even went so far as to have um, the girls inspected before the seance they would bring in these other ladies to inspect them and look under their dresses privately before the men came in and do a sort of an inspection to prove that they weren't holding some sort of knocking device under their dresses and that sort of thing and so they would pull off these public uh, events and there was a mixed response from the public most of the people attending were kind of amazed and there were some people that just kind of went off the deep end with it, believing it wholeheartedly. And then there were those that were skeptical and critics of the whole thing, believing it was somewhat of a hoax that two girls were doing something and they just couldn't figure out what it was. So you had this kind of divide in the mentality of the public that would witness these events. Now this was 1848, so this was starting to pick up as a movement and as the girls did more performances and the performances would certainly draw a lot of people they were drawing like a hundred people to some of these events and there were prominent people of the time by 1850 they had started attracting notable people of the time like William Cullen Bryant George Bancroft even the author James Fenimore Cooper showed up as well as Horace Greeley who was a publisher of a newspaper at the time and if you're familiar with Battle Creek history, Sojourner Truth, when she was in New York, visiting and speaking about abolitionism and temperance, would attend these workshops. And she was involved with the spiritualist movement. And then there was also William Lloyd Garrison. So these were all prominently known people during the time that were attending these seances and observing the Fox sisters and so other people started putting on the same type of performances, you might say, and creating their own spiritualist groups, and it fostered primarily in the Quaker community. Uh, the Quakers of the time were somewhat the radicals of their day. You know, the Quakers were way ahead of their time as it was because they were in favor of women's rights. They wanted women's rights to vote. So they were behind the suffrage movement. And then there was also the temperance movement and the abolitionism. So they were ahead of the curve on a lot of social issues that mainstream society during that period of the 1850s were not. And so when spiritualism came around with this extraordinary 
events being put on by the Fox sisters, they believed it, and they many of them believed it, and many of them got behind it and started supporting the expansion of spiritualism, believing it offered a, a connection to the dead and to the people that had gone before and to the afterlife and so forth. And it somewhat fit with their religious belief. It was a little different type of belief system with the Quakers. They they were not like the conventional religions that we're so accustomed to today. We have a singular minister before a congregation that delivers a sermon and delivers the message of God and so forth to a church group. And every church is kind of structured that way in most Christian faiths and depending on the message. And the message varies and the reference material might vary, but the, the, the premise and the setup is essentially the same, at least back in that time. Whereas the Quakers, their form of Religious worship was a little different. They had meeting houses. Typically, there was no central minister that delivered any kind of sermon. They would go in, they would do individual prayer. They did have prayer books, and they had their own version of the Bible and their scriptures that they followed. But they would go to these meeting houses, and they were often divided with a partition down the middle of the room where the women would pray on one side and the men would pray on the other side. And their times in the meeting house were often long. They'd be in there for maybe an hour or longer praying. And then when they were done, they all came out. And that was sort of how those religious sessions, as you might call them, were held. And so they had their own personal connection with God. And so when you offer this belief system that says, hey, you know, you can talk to the people that have come before us or people that have died, and it offered a sense of... Uh, relief in a lot of ways. And so I'm going to read just some references by some of the people that followed spiritualism and took it and embraced it and helped build it into a larger national movement. And many of these players came through Battle Creek, as well as Sturgis, Michigan, and Vicksburg. Those were three areas in southwest Michigan that I'm aware of that had large spiritualism Populations. There was also a spiritualism population over in Washtenaw County on the other side of the state and also in the Detroit area in Ann Arbor. And so the southern band of Michigan had a lot of these Quaker communities that were starting to embrace spiritualism. Now that grew more towards the 1860s in Michigan and getting post-Civil War there was a resurgence of spiritualism. So there are several things that happened following the Civil War. One, the Quakers had been strong supporters of abolitionism. And during the Civil War, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Lincoln, it freed the slaves. And their mission at that point was over. And even Erastus Hussey gave an interview in many years later and said that that was a turning point in Quakerism in the United States because suddenly they no longer had a mission anymore. Their mission had been driven by abolitionism for so many decades prior to that that the goal had been made, you know, slavery was abolished. And the war wasn't even complete when that happened. And so when the war finished, that was a factor because you have the Quakers suddenly not having a cause anymore. And a lot of people in the Quaker community began to take a harder look at spiritualism. Other factors involved that really saw a rise in spiritualism 
was after two different wars, the Civil War and also after World War I. And what was occurring there was a lot of families, particularly in the Civil War, the men went off to war and they, the ones that didn't come back, the families often never found out what happened to them. And if you visit a lot of the Civil War cemeteries along the East Coast through Virginia, Georgia, there's a lot of unknown soldiers buried in many of these Civil War cemeteries on the battlefield. They were marked unknown. And part of the reasoning behind that is the system for dog tags wasn't implemented until after the Civil War. It was during that war that they discovered that they really had a problem identifying bodies, that they didn't have a system in place for soldiers to be identified. And so the system of dog tags became developed after the Civil War and World War I was the first war that they were implemented, and there was different variations of dog tags even in that war going forward until what they are today. And now dog tags have a lot more information or different information. They at least have the serial number. Serial number systems were put in place for military personnel. Their names were put on there. And now they also have their blood type for medical. So if you find a wounded soldier on the battlefield, they not only know their name and their serial number, but they also know immediately what their blood type is, what they can help them in a medical sense. So um, that's how dog tags have evolved. And there's probably a few other pieces of information on there that I'm, I'm missing, but you kind of get the idea. There was an identity source with dog tags. Well, that didn't exist in the Civil War. So unless the soldiers themselves sewed their name inside their uniform or created their own dog tags, which some of them did, there's a lot of bodies that were unidentified on the battlefield unless there was somebody there that knew the person and so a lot of these graves would get dug and they'd mark unknown because they didn't know who they were so the rostering system um, they would be able to identify that the person was missing but they weren't able to determine if he was dead or if he was just missing in action you know was he a prisoner of war was he dead did he um, escape and just run off there was a lot of that uh administrative mix-up during the Civil War after a battle. And so there are a lot of graves in these Civil War cemeteries that are marked as unknown. Forty percent, I have been told, in Virginia alone. So there's a tremendous amount of unknown people. So here you've got the following the Civil War. Can you imagine how many families just didn't know what happened to their loved one? And then at the same time, this movement that's been rising since the 1850s, through and is creeping across the country is offering a way to speak with the dead. And so you can kind of see how desperate people wanting to find out what happened to their loved ones would embrace this movement. And so you see this rise of spiritualism in groups across the country following the Civil War. The other factor that I've read about that had a role in the rise of spiritualism was the increase of photography Prior to the Civil War, photography was typically portrait-oriented or very limited. So you didn't have photography as advanced as it was. And during the Civil War, it received some more advancements, and there was a lot of photos coming back of battlefields of dead bodies everywhere. And these were making their way into the public. And so finally, the public were able to see what war looked like, whereas before the Civil War, the American Civil War, War of 1812, Revolutionary War, for example, the people back home didn't really have an understanding of what war looked like. They didn't have a visual reference, unless they had been a soldier that had been there 
all they could do was describe it to their family members. And even without seeing it, it's a little hard to envision the entire thing. And so you have this medium of photography that suddenly has been introduced prior to the Civil War, and it's bringing back these graphic images of the camps where the soldiers are um, wounded and missing limbs, and then you see these battlefields with bodies as far as you can see, and dead horses, and smoke, and cannon, and burnt landscapes, and all of the horrible graphic scenes of the Civil War. And this was even further increased when World War I came around, where they started sending men with cameras into the battlefield. And so they were coming back with these visual photos of the trenches and the war. And there was a lot of men that went over to France during World War One, And so there was another resurgence following World War I of spiritualism. So you have these, these factors that helped create this demand for it. So these are all aspects of how this spiritualism movement grew. And it all began with the hoax of these sisters, the Fox sisters, and their their sister Leah taking f- the idea to run with it as a form of uh, making money is the best way to describe it. I mean, Leah had dollar signs in her mind. And Leah eventually went on to become a millionaire herself, whereas her sisters didn't fare so well in the long run. So I'm going to read you some of the references that I found now so that you can kind of get an idea of the different viewpoints on spiritualism. The first I'm going to read you is from Dr. James Martin Peebles. Now, I did an episode on him last year, I believe, and I'm going to read you his book that he wrote on spiritualism. He wrote many books on spiritualism, but here's one of them. Now, I will point out that in his time... Peebles was often considered to be a bit of a quack, and his medical degree was always somewhat questionable, even though he did have a medical degree and he was a PhD in medicine. But um, he wrote this book here in 1910. It was published, and it's called What is Spiritualism? Who are these spiritualists, and what can spiritualism do for the world? by J.M. Peebles, M.D., M.A., PhD. And this is the fifth edition of this book. And you might remember that he was an author of aging books as well. How to Live to a Hundred was one of his other popular books of the time. And he himself almost made it to a hundred. He lived to 99 and I think it was nine months. So here's a note that he wrote in the preface of this book. And I'm going to read you just a couple of paragraphs of it. He says, the rapidly increasing demand for spiritualistic literature of a rational and religious character is a marked and significant sign showing the progress and the searchlight purposes of the times. Naturally shrinking from the chill and silence of death, nothing of greater importance can possibly occupy the human mind than the present proofs, the incontestable proofs, of a conscious life beyond the graves. With this book goes forth from my soul thousands of good wishes and richest of heaven's blessings. And here's what he writes about spiritualism. He says, what is spiritualism? Spiritualism is the philosophy of life and the direct opposite of materialism. 
thinking, meditating, Columbus concluded that if there was a this side, there must necessarily be a that side to the world. And so sailing on and still onward towards the western sunset, under the inspiration of a lofty faith, he discovered the new world. And like a flash, faith became fruition. And so students of the occult, spiritualists of the last century, meditating, investigating, discovered or rather rediscovered the spirit world, the spiritualism of the elder ages, intuition and the soul's higher senses with the outreaching ideal are ever prophesied of the incoming real, that today's a fire with life and love assure us of the coming tomorrow. This world indicates another, a future world, where spiritualists have not only rediscovered, but have quite fully described. Spiritualism does not create truth, but is a living witness to the truth of a future existence. It reveals it, demonstrates it, describing its inhabitants, their occupations, and characteristics. Hannibal crossed the Alps 20 centuries before Napoleon did. Napoleon reasoned that what that man had done man could do, and so with flags and banners unfurled, he led the conquering French over the snow-capped Alps, and through all the centuries before and since Hannibal's time, through all the historic ages, there were rifts in the clouds, there were visions and voices from the better land of immortality. Inspired mystics and philosophers testified alike to the reality of apparitions, the appearance of good angels, and the fulfillment of dreams. An angel, a spirit being, appeared to Joseph in the dream, announcing the coming of Jesus. And he goes on and on to describe the patriarchs and prophets and the seers, even in Abraham's and Isaiah's time and so forth. But you kind of get the idea how at this point in 1910, when he's written this book, it is being interwoven with religious idealism and it's emerging from the early part of where it was more the occult talking to the dead and in sort of a seance formation. And now it's becoming more of a religion by the early 1900s, and it's a, just an interesting shift. Now, one of the biggest critics of the time was Houdini, and he was forever exposing spiritualists for hoaxers. And he wrote several books and contributed to several books debunking spiritualism during the time. Now, I don't have one of his specific books, but one of these other authors did consult with Houdini on their book. And James Martin Peebles did spend a lot of time in Battle Creek. In fact, he had a practice in southwest Michigan here. He also traveled to other communities that were involved with spiritualism. He was known to have visited Harmonia, as well as, my guess is he probably went to Vicksburg and Sturgis because he was a prominent speaker in the spiritualism movement. And he also went to California and Texas and established spiritualism groups in those areas as well. Now, this book is more than just debunking spiritualism. It basically exposed it completely, and it was one of the many writings during this period in time. Now, this was towards the late 1800s, well before Dr. Peebles wrote his book and was still touring and professing the value of spiritualism. 
This book was published in 1888. It was 30 years after the Fox sisters had done their first demonstration and did their biggest demonstrations in Rochester, New York. And this book was called The Death Blow to Spiritualism, and it's called The True Story of the Fox Sisters as Revealed by Authority of Margaret Fox Kane and Catherine Fox Jenkin. And this was written by Reuben Briggs Davenport, and it was published in 1888. And he states in the preface that the full authorization of Mrs. Margaret Fox Kane and Catherine Fox Jenkin for the publication of this work will be found on the next to the following page. And it indeed has a letter here a, signed by both of the Fox sisters. And it says, We hereby approve of Mr. Reuben B. Davenport's design to write a true account of the origin of spiritualism and of our connection therewith, and we authorize him to make proper use of all data and material that we furnish him. New York, 15 October, 1888. And it was signed, Margareta Fox Kane and Catherine Fox Jenkin. Now, partly what made the girls wait 30 years was they had become celebrities in a way. And they were under the thumb a lot of Leah. And they both got married. Margareta's husband was an explorer and he went off to i think it was the yukon and ended up dying in uh, an accident up there on some exploration mission that he had gone up there on but after his death she was a widow and she didn't really have any money she was feeling like she was all her life being taken advantage of and she was very bitter with her sister leah Um, and so she decided that she was just going to expose everything and I guess when she started to do so, her other sister, Catherine, decided to say, okay, it's time. Let's do this. So Margareta was coming back from Europe on a ship, and she decided that um, she was going to talk to a newspaper. And they published a newspaper article with her revelations, and it was called God Has Not Ordered It. A celebrated medium says the spirits never return. Captain Kane's widow one of the Fox sister promises an interesting exposure of the fraud. And so that was like a, a pre-article for the forthcoming article. And then she sat down and did basically laid out the truth behind the fact that the entire set of wrappings in the beginning was a hoax put on by her and her sister Kate. And in this book, he writes that the impulse to set herself right on the record of the world after years of enslavement in the hateful jives of charlatism must stand to Maggie Fox's credit alone. It sprang upon her from the inspiration, suggestion, or persuasion by no one else. Returning from Europe in September 1888 after a peculiar experience which had convinced her that these chiefs of spiritualistic fraud who feared her and her sister because they held the key to the whole of the artificial mystery were bent upon persecuting them into the abject silence she at once put in execution. The resolution which had been to come forward and basically expose the entire thing. And she apparently had made known that she was going to do this to these members that had grown in this spiritualist movement over in Europe, that she was going to expose everything, and she was tired of it. And they had 
previously held the Fox sisters in high esteem, and suddenly they were being attacked for wanting to expose the false origins of spiritualism as a false system of communicating with the dead, and that they weren't really mediums, and that no one really was a medium, at least they were in pretending, you know, it was all a big pretense, and that was how it all started, based on the origins of her and her sister, Kate. So here's what she wrote to the Herald in New York from her hotel, I guess, in London, and she brought it with her across the water when she was headed back to the United States. She said, I read in the Herald of Saturday, May 5th, an account of the sad misfortune that had befallen my dear sister Katie, Miss Kate Fox Jenkin, and in the article is stated that I am still a resident of New York, which is a mistake. I sailed for England on the 22nd of March, and I presume my absence was added to my darling sister's distressed state of mind. The sad news has nearly killed me. My sister's two beautiful boys referred to are her idols. It wasn't clear what happened to her two sons. I read references that her children were taken away because Kate was an alcoholic. It goes on to say, spiritualism is a curse. God has set his seal against it. I call it a curse, for it made us as a covering for heartless persons, like the vilest miscreants make use of it to cloak their evil doings. Fanatics like Mr. Luther Marsh and John O'Sullivan, ex-minister to Portugal, and hundreds equally as learned, ignore the wrappings, which is the only part of the phenomena that is worthy of notice, and rush madly after the glaring humbugs that flood New York, but a harmless message that is given through the wrappings is of little account to them. They want the spirit to come to them in full form, to walk before them, talk to them, and embrace them, and all such nonsense. And what is the result? Like old Judge Edmonds of Philadelphia, they become crazed, and all of the direction of their fraud mediums, they are induced to part with their worldly possessions as well as their common sense, which God intended they should hold sacred. So what she's pointing out here is that people that would get connected with these leaders of spiritualism and have these mediums who were really frauds tell them about the afterlife and they hold some stuff back and they say, well, you have to give you more money and that sort of thing. And they basically sell off all their worldly possessions so that they can get the next message from the mediums. And it was a, it was a big trap. And she was looking at this as like a big sense of fraud, as well as some of the critics of the time were saying, hey, this is ridiculous. Don't give your money to these people. And so she was coming forth and just really being bitter because in the beginning it was just more of a, a goodwill message coming from the wrappings that she and her sister were trying to impart. And even though it was a hoax, it was done in uh, with a good sense of uh, trying to give people a sense of well-being, I suppose. And she goes on to write, I have found that fanatics are a plentiful among the inferior men and women as they are among the more learned. They are all alike. They cannot hold their fanaticism in check, and it increases as their years increase. All they will ever achieve for their foolish fanaticism will be loss of money, softening of the brain, and a lingering death. Margaret F. Kane. So she was pretty solid slamming the whole movement with that letter. And there was a 
reeling effect that came out of her letter because he or she is one of the founders of the spiritualism movement, revered within the spiritualist community, and suddenly she's basically calling them all charlatans and so forth. And it just really um, created an upheaval in the spiritualism movement. And this guy's book, Death Blow to Spiritualism. Now, this is 1888, and it was starting to fall apart then, but there were still people following spiritualism all the way through the First World War, which was 1917 and into 1918. And it was still, spiritualism was still around post-World War I. So even in the years that followed with the Fox sisters announcing the origins of spiritualism, they still continued on. The group still kind of evolved into these other things. And I believe there's probably still groups of them around today, but they're not anywhere near as much as they were in the late 1800s. And I think that was what Margaret, or Maggie is what she went by, um, was pointing out, was that these people were taking advantage of others. And she saw that there was a lot of grift going on and people taking money from poor people. And it was all a hoax in her regard. So she was tired of it. So how did she and her sister pull off the knocking? Well, she demonstrated it to the author of this book, And she walked over to a wall and merely put her elbow against the wall. And suddenly she asked a question and then there were three knocks in response. And she pointed out that she and her sister had the ability to... um, There was two things I think going on here. They had joints that they could pop in their feet, in their ankles. And so they did this and they, they they developed a skill to do it very loudly and do it so that it uh, sounded like wood and sharp and distinct. And they had practiced this since a a young age. And so they became very good at it over 30 years. And then additionally, they also got to be familiar with the furniture in the room, and she would move the joints of the furniture and know exactly how to make uh, a noise with the furniture and that sort of thing without showing any movement. And so they did this mostly with their ankles and their feet, with the uh, the popping sound so they would make this sound that they would it would sound like a knock because it was a very loud pop of their ankles and they both had the skill to be able to do this and that's how the early knockings were pulled off but it was all a secret kept between her and her sister for so long and she says in this book and this guy did a good job of quoting what she exactly said she says when spiritualism first began kate and i were little children And this old woman, my other sister, made us her tools. Mother was a silly woman, and she was a fanatic. I call her that because she was honest. She believed in these things. Spiritualism started from just nothing. We were but innocent little children. What did we know? Ah, we grew to know so much. Our sister used us in her exhibitions, and we made money for her. Now she turns upon us because she's the wife of a rich man, and she opposes us both whenever she can. Oh, I am after her. You can kill sometimes without using weapons, you know. So she, that was her quote. So basically she was after her sister by wanting to expose this whole thing. And then while interviewing her, she says to him, you want to know what are the points of my coming expose? First, the wrappings. And he said, Mrs. Kane paused there, and then I heard 
first a wrapping under the floor near my feet, and then under the chair in which I was seated, and again under a table in which I was leaning. She led me to the door, and I heard the same sound on the other side of it. Then, when she sat on the piano stool, the legs of the instrument reverberated more loudly, and the tap-tap resounded throughout its hollow structure. Is it all a trick? I asked. Absolutely. Spirits, is he not easily fooled? Rap, rap, rap. I can always get an affirmative answer to that question, she remarked. Then I addressed certain suppositions to her. At last she said, yes, you have hit it. It is all you say, the manner in which the joints of the foot can be used without lifting it from the floor. The power of doing this can only be acquired by practice begun in early youth. One must begin as early as 12 years old. 13 is rather late. We children, when we were playing together years ago, discovered it, and it was my eldest sister who put the discovery to such an infamous use. I call it infamous, but it was. So there you have it. She explained it to him in this book, and he wrote it verbatim of what she said. And it was a skill that they developed as young ladies when their bones were still developing. And they could create this artificial popping now noise or rapping noise that came out of the joints of their ankles. And the more they did it, the more they were able to continue doing it similar to popping knuckles and that sort of thing. And they did learn other tricks as the more they did it. So they could create the illusion. And of course, over 30 years, they created other ways to make knocking sounds without appearing to move. And they were very adept at it. And so it's just uh, it, it's just more, more or less a magic trick or something that they, they learned and they exploited it and they used it on the folks that uh, were gullible, I guess. And after a while, they're, they wised up as they grew older because they got into this when they were really young and they were kind of innocent. But the older sister was much more shrewd and basically took advantage of them with her expositions that she would put on with the sisters and drawing in all the money, keeping the money for herself, maybe giving them a little bit. And that was how it worked for many years. And then they got older and became adults and um, they started having doubts themselves, even though they would go and they'd be on exhibitions with large crowds all over the world. As the original Fox sisters, they still were not prospering from it themselves like their older sister was. And so that's just an interesting backstory. Now, spiritualism, as I mentioned before, was across southwest Michigan. Harmonia was a village that used to exist west of Battle Creek, and it was founded on spiritualism. In fact, the son of Reynolds and Dorcas Cornell was the one that came home from Olivet College with the idea to establish the Bedford Harmonial Institute, and his name was Hiram Cornell. And so with his parents, they established the Bedford Harmonial Institute. And then later, parents decided to plat a village, and they platted out the village of Harmonia. And that was uh, how the beginning of that happened. And so they sold lots to people. Some houses were built out there, and it never really prospered a lot although a lot of students did attend the Institute for several years. And that was established in the 1850s. So the Fox sisters' message around the world, it started to spread, and it spread as far as Battle Creek at that time, and it got into the college. So this Hiram Cornell learned about it at Olivet College, and it became the buzz of the time. Very much like you see a lot of movements today coming out of colleges that are kooky and weird and whatever, 
And as we've seen through history, and that's not to say anything about present day specifically, but you know what I mean. There's a lot of all kinds of ideas that start on the college campuses. And this is kind of how it happened with spiritualism in a lot of ways. And the village of Harmonia existed up until about the beginning of World War I when the last remains of the village was uh, taken by Fort Custer out there. And so it no longer exists. However, the Harmonia Cemetery still exists over in Bedford Township. And many of the residents of Harmonia that live there are buried in that cemetery. Uh, not many of the early spiritualists, as far as I was able to find when I did a, a video out there on Harmonia. But um, I'll probably have to go back at some time and do a little more historical research on the folks that are buried there. So what ultimately became of the Fox sisters is a bit of a sad story. Over the years, Kate and Margareta, or Maggie, had developed serious drinking problems. Around 1888, they became embroiled in a quarrel with their sister, which was how Maggie came into helping that man write the book, The Death Blow to Spiritualism, which I referenced earlier. And so Leah's response was to attack Kate and Maggie, and Leah and other leading spiritualists in this movement started to have concerns that Kate was drinking too much to care for her own children. At the same time, Maggie was contemplating a return to the Roman Catholic faith, and she became convinced that her powers that were so-called powers within the spiritualism movement as a medium were diabolical. So sadly, Kate died in her home in New York City in July of 1892. And less than a year later, Maggie, deep in alcoholism, was living on the charity as the sole tenant in the home of a spiritualist in Brooklyn. And she died in March of 1893. So all three sisters are interred in Brooklyn, New York. Margareta and Maggie and Kate are in Cypress Hill Cemetery, and Leah, with the rest of the Fox family, is in Greenwood Cemetery. And historically, even though the Fox sisters admitted it was all a hoax, even today, in parapsychological literature, they mention the legacy of the Fox sisters and their history of the wrappings and so forth, but they often omit their mention of their own trickery. So it's just an interesting part of that whole history and legacy of parapsychology, I guess you might say, that was originally known as spiritualism. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. I just wanted to give you like a broad brushstroke sketch of the history of spiritualism, some of the backstory behind it, some of the players involved in the connection to Southwest Michigan, because it was a very interesting movement and there was a lot of passionate people involved in it during its existence and during its uh, heyday years you might say and there was a lot of corruption that went on as well as some bad things that happened uh, well there's a story that i have included in my upcoming book on true crime that connects to spiritualism and a murder that happened that was associated with that and that was the Haviland Children Murders, which I've covered on another podcast episode before. But I will be including that full story in my upcoming book. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, subscribe, and tell other people about this podcast. And use a rating on whatever app that you are using out there. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. 
And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. <laughs>